Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello. Hiya. Hi. Uh, we don't. We don't have an interview, do we? No. But I am. Allowed, I am allowed to call you for non-carry related stuff. You know? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Of course. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I am recording this though because I'm interested. Right. So I'm gonna. What would you call this item of clothing? Right. <laughs> so just to clarify, that is an image from the Carry the Musical program. Yeah, yeah, sorry, it is, yeah. So it's still a, okay, and I would call it a unitard. Unitard. I think that's what, I think that's what we would call it. I thought so. I, I thought maybe it was a leotard, but I didn't know what the difference was, and I thought you might know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I'd have called, yeah, a leotard, a unitard, or a body, even, might have been called in the 90s. What's a catsuit? Is that different? I think catsuit has to have legs. Okay, right. I mean, don't quote me on that. Okay. I just, I was just doing a bit of research and I thought I needed to get this right. I think I'm going to, let's call it unitard. We'll call it unitard. Hashtag unitard. Hashtag unitard. <laughs> Great, cool, thanks. That's all you wanted, was it? Yeah. Cheers, <laughs> bye. See you later. <laughs> Chapter five, act one. Cardboard cars and unitards. Welcome back to Out for Blood. I'm Chris. And I'm Holly. And this is our arguably too deeper dive into the weird and wacky world of Carrie the Musical, the prom queen of Broadway musical disasters. And we've both been on quite a ride mm-hmm. watching the Carrie car crash in full motion. Not once, but twice, both in its first run at Stratford-upon-Avon, England, then once again on Broadway when its lead producer saw the bad reviews, panicked, shut down the bank accounts and fled to Germany, where he lived happily ever after, producing Starlight Express, a musical about singing trains. It's a dramatic tale indeed, but there are plenty of other musical flops out there. Why are we sitting here spending hours of our lives talking about this one? It's a good question, and one that our friends, family and loved ones have been asking repeatedly for quite some time now. Mm. There's just something about the original production of Carrie that is compelling, addictive even, something that has kept it alive in the imagination for three decades and counting. And it's our affliction, sorry, 
mission to find out what it is. So we've been re-watching those bootleg videos and listening back to those audios. Have you been dreaming about Carrie? Because I have. Oh my God, it needs to stop. Maybe <laughs> someone needs to stage an intervention. <laughs> anyway, we've gone through the 1988 production with a fine-tooth comb to find out what makes Carrie so legendary and to discover if all of those myths are true. And we asked our excellent gang of original cast members, not to mention those lucky ticket holders and super fans, to walk us through the OG Carrie from all angles. Let's dive in. Now, a big reason Carrie is remembered is its design, which one reviewer summed up nicely by saying it felt like the sets and costumes bore no relation to the story. I mean, it was certainly a daring <laughs> one. But I think, you know, it was a time of, of experimental um, artistry. And I think that that's why... Um, you know, with, with Carrie, it was it was a very stylized piece. They made a choice. I don't know whose choice it was to sort of style it in the way they did, but um, it was it was epic. It wasn't necessarily right, but it was it was epic. There was a lot of money in those days. You know, I mean, you know, they threw money at it and and at every big major musical that was going on at the time. Um, not always for the best, and and probably a, a huge amount wasted. Lindsay has a theory that this combination of big-budget experimentation plus the generally dodgy aesthetic of the late 80s led to Carrie's bizarre, non-naturalistic design. You know, fashion wasn't great at the time and there was too much money being spent at the, um, you know, the, the style of it to make it kind of wacky and weird rather than actually, you know, actually bringing it down to the reality, which is really, uh, you know, a musical musical tragedy. You know, it's a heartbreaking story. Uh, and it, it's it is. It's, 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 it, you know, it's Cinderella gone wrong and it, it breaks hearts if done in the right vein. Let's tackle the ultimate Carrie urban legend. Rewind to Terry Hans' meeting with original producer Fran Weisler. Kenny recalls. When the original producer met Terry Hans, and it was a woman at the time, she said, I wanted to have a feeling of Greece. And Terry took that as being Greece the place, not Greece the musical. So he went away with this idea thinking, this is brilliant, I shall go for the Greek look and the Greek chorus and all that stuff. And once you know that, you suddenly go, oh, it makes sense. I see exactly where he's coming from. Another variation of this myth is that it was Terry, with years of classical directing under his belt, who told choreographer Debbie Allen that he wanted the show to feel like Greece, meaning he'd approach it through the lens of ancient Greek theatre. But she went away and planned her choreography with a distinctly Greece the musical feel. Visions of leg warmers bumping and grinding and high kicks galore. Of course, we also know that the creative team had imagined their show, just like the movie, being set in the same world as other high school musicals like Grease. And of course, Fame, which several of them had worked on. Joey and Suzanne from the ensemble. It makes perfect sense because when you look at the show, the way the show written, it's this crass, adolescent sort of, you know, very Greece-esque sort of take high school students, get in trouble, the prom, all that stuff. And then you had the way Terry Hands designed it and conceptualized it. We were all in white. That Greek, the Greek costumes, the girls in thin. And it was all about white, black, and red. So it had this whole um, uh, stylization of ancient Greece. Either way, Someone misunderstood something about Greece. Yes, yeah, that seems like that. <laughs> yeah. <doesn't> it? <laughs> and it's true that Terry and Debbie didn't seem to be very good at communicating with each other. But surely at some point somebody would point out the confusion. Peter Michael Marino, who saw the show, asks the big question. And again, you have to go like, how do the producers not see any of these design sketches 
we this is what you do on the first rehearsal is like everyone has a show and tell of like what the show's gonna look and feel like. How did they not why did it take them so long to realize like, oh no, we didn't mean Greek like clothing, we meant like Greek tragedy, like it's so tragic. When it did eventually become obvious that these two creative forces were working on distinctly different interpretations, it was either too late to do anything about it, or neither wanted to back down from their personal vision. Whatever happened, Carrie's iconic look is packed with imagery and tropes from ancient Greek theatre, costumes reminiscent of togas, a white temple-esque set, and scenes made up like a series of dioramas, like in a tragic play. I didn't know that. That makes perfect sense. He was literally trying to create almost like these little tableaus. And I remember saying to him, why am I sitting on the floor? Like, I could, you know, as an actress, I, I couldn't understand what we've just done the prom. I mean, I, what, what is this? But now that makes perfect sense. He's just creating you know, imagery. Yeah. And so with seemingly no attempt to try and weld together Carrie's home and school worlds, this was quite a bipolar production, with audiences flung wildly between alternating adolescent dance routines and avant-garde high drama for Carrie's scenes with her mother. So let's go back to 1988 and see how those two visions translated to the stage. As audiences entered the Royal Shakespeare Theatre in Stratford or the Virginia Theatre on Broadway, they were in for a surprise. The entire interior of the auditorium had been painted black. The house lights had a red hue, giving the space a tense and spooky vibe. The overture begins. Cleverly, it sounds quite grand and traditional, perhaps lulling the audience into a false sense of security. But after the first few opening notes... Boom! The entire house is plunged into darkness. Like that, like a switch. And people screamed. And I screamed because it was so effective. And all they did was turn, on a, turn off a light switch. But, you know, you're used to, like, the house lights dimming. So I'd never seen anything like it. I mean, it was really simple, but... You know, that's what it was. And then the, you know, the pulsing part of the overture starts and it just sounds great. And you just think, I just remember thinking, oh my God, this is going to be so wonderful. And the thing that was one of the best things about it is the show started with a really ominous, loud boom. And then in that same second, the lights all went out. There was no dimming of the lights. It was just went from the red environment, black walls of the theater to black. And I was like, whoa, that is so cool. I, I just like my mouth was open. I'm sitting there in the dark, listening to this overture with my mouth open going, this is Carrie the musical. I just, I just was like, I can't believe it. I'm sitting right here. You know, I was really excited. Like it was a thrill. I'll never forget it. And I have to tell you, I was hooked. Overture is a minute-long marathon of pulsing snippets from the score to come. As it ends, the curtain rises and... And that was it. It was over. My love affair. I had literally no idea what I was going to see. There had not been any photos that I had seen. You know, when up comes the curtain or the, the scrim on that white, you know, plexiglass box thing that looked so... Unusual, it, it, it suggested gymnasium. And I remember thinking, oh, there's gonna be blood on that. <laughs> there's gonna be blood all over it. And the girls were all in the back. And I remember they screamed, they just went, ah! And then ran forward and did the opening number. That number is in. 
on a completely white, shiny box of a set, the ensemble girls, wearing short, ruffled skirts resembling togas, rush forward and start Debbie Allen's most intensely aerobic routine of the show. difference between the sweeping orchestral thrill of the overture and the pumped-up 80s madness of Inn definitely reflects the Jekyll and Hyde nature of the show. If the audience had been captivated by the overture, they were completely thrown by the extended pulse-raising dance sequence that was Inn. Peter recalls. It's sort of like they, they told Debbie Allen, like, we need you to, like, fill this void of a plastic space we've created with as many arms and legs as possible using a cast of 12 in the ensemble, go. You know, they're just, it's so distracting. But then you have to wonder, like, how were they doing aerobics and singing at the same time? There were indeed no click tracks, which are pre-recorded vocals, often used in shows where high-paced choreography makes it impossible to sing. But back in England, the cast had at least had some support. In Stratford... We had booth singers, and the the girls doing the opening number, they had booth singers backing up their vocals. Went to New York, no booth singers. Those are backup singers who help support the onstage vocalists from the wings at particularly energetic moments. On Broadway, the girls had to dance and sing like their lives depended on it. So the girls had to do all the vocals from the stage doing that without being able to breathe, because it was a killer number. And they just cut the booth singers. Shelley Hodgson from the ensemble. We, it was a full-on exercise class. Yeah. We literally were doing... Remember we sat up when your, your body and your legs come yeah. up together and we're holding these notes and we're pounding our hands on the floor. And I've watched it going... This is the worst thing to do for any kind of sound quality. Like a cherry on top of a particularly insane cake, Darlene Love enters as the gym teacher, Miss Gardner, wearing what I can only describe as Grecian athleisure wear, completing the look with white high-heeled pumps. (laughs) She barks orders at the girls as they continue their Jane Fonda-inspired routine. You know, so Darlene Love comes out and she's a recognizable name. She sort of walks downstage through the girls and she see, and the audience sort of applauds for her. She wasn't a huge star, but it was a light applause. And she sort of seemed to acknowledge the applause. <laughs> she did. She really did. And I don't think that's what she was doing, but that's just what it looked like she was doing. Incredible. I love it so much. (laughs) Welcome to Carrie the Musical. (laughs) Stephen thinks there may have been echoes of real life in the way that character was interpreted. And, you know, and then she starts into the, you know, all right, ladies, I want to see sweat. And that reminded me so much of Debbie Allen and Fame. I thought, oh, you know, I totally see where they did that. And they did that number. The song itself serves to introduce us to our first setting, Carrie's high school, as the teenagers express their desperate desires to fit in with the crowd. Through the medium of a cheerleader routine, the girls list all the materialistic things they wish would happen to make their lives perfect in the eyes of their peers. Until you fit in, they sing, you ain't where it's at. The ethics of a gym teacher yelling, Shame on you, shame on you, all the ways to see. 
at a bunch of teenage girls might be dubious when examined through a modern lens. But it does help us understand the isolation that Carrie feels from this bunch of hyper-fit, seemingly perfect girls in a world where you've got to be thin to be in. In the workshop production of the show a couple of years earlier, you may remember there had been an early prototype of this song called Ain't It A Bitch. Some of the lyrics and the general intention of the song have survived, but In is a much pacier, energetic introduction to Carrie's school battleground. Even before we meet the title character, the audience is left in no doubt that these girls will do anything to prove their worth in the high school's social structure. But of course, there's one girl who is different to the rest. And they do the number. And I remember looking to go, I wonder which one of these girls is Carrie. I, I was trying to sort of spot her because, again, no idea what she was going to look like. And then late in the number, she wasn't on stage. You, you see one, like a door open in the very back of that plastic, of that plexiglass white box. And you see Lindsay Haightley sort of, you know, slink out and just stand there. And she's wearing like a white button down shirt. She doesn't look like the rest of them because they all had sort of like, you know, trim. I think they had red trim and she didn't or something like that, or they all look really sexy and she didn't. And I remember her just sort of standing there really stoic and she looked scary there. And but you had to sort of look to see her. Carrie tries in vain to mimic the frantic routine. By the end of the number, as she watches on, the girls form a human pyramid using trapeze bars. Because why not? You know, they, they, they've lifted the girls up on like, you know, and like ropes come down and then they go up on it. And I thought it looked really cool. And then when Carrie moves and they fall, it sort of happens in slow motion and they start, you know, screaming at her. And so far I'm thinking this is, this, this is good. The audience was really eating it up and it seemed to work really well. This seems as good a place as any to talk about costumes. Yes. They were designed by Alexander Reed, an RSC stalwart who had earned a Tone nomination in 1985. On Carrie, he certainly had his work cut out for him. Terry's vision meant that the girls' gym outfits had a distinctly classical feel. Quite a long way from your average high school gym class fashion. Not very 1980s. 1980 BC, maybe? (laughs) Audience member Scott Briefer has opinions. The costumes were ridiculous. They were ridiculous. They were so inappropriate and they set the tone all wrong. And I honestly believe that if they had redone the costumes, it would not have been treated the way it was treated. The costumes alone destroyed that show. There were other more practical issues with the costumes in the opening number. Sally Ann and Shelley shared some harrowing memories. The costumes were made in this material that um, shrunk. Um, so these costumes that were just a little bit bigger than bikinis to start with, well, every time we like got to work the next day, Charlotte would be like, oh my God, my costume is so small. And, and you know, they were just getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And then like in the next scene, we were literally in our underwear and had to find places to hide our mics and stuff. And we do trying to do in, we had them in our, we had them down here. So we had to do the choreography on one one cheek because we couldn't actually sit on our backs. They were huge things. And we had to literally dance on sort of one cheek because because we were in agony because they were in uh, bum, bum cracks basically, hidden. Sorry, I, 
bum knickers, you know. <laughs> I'm trying to put this pants in our pants. Some incredible insight from <laughs> Shelley there. Charlotte D'Amboise recalls an early request from Terry about the girl's hair in the number. See, he was very futuristic about the whole thing. So he wanted us all in high ponytails. So he wanted me, and of course Sue would have a dark one, so we'd have like a boop and a long, long ponytail. And he wanted everybody that way. Um, I would have a blonde one, Sue would have a black one, and then, and then everyone would have, I guess, colored ones. I don't remember what, the, but that was the original concept of that whole However unusual Terry wanted the girls to look, they also had to be able to dance. I think Debbie, I think, stood up and said, let's cut it, because she liked the way my hair moved. If the costumes didn't represent the world of the story very well, the set certainly took things a step further. That opening sequence killed Carrie. And the reason, here's what it was. The curtain came up and the stage was all white. Designed by award-winning set designer Ralph Koltai, the action played out on a vast empty stage surrounded by shiny plexiglass-style panels which could rotate to be white, black or mirrored. Basically, a giant box. And I ended up working with him, really, just like one show um, a few years before he died. And you know, maybe you don't know, but he was also a translator in the Nuremberg Trials. I mean, he's like, his life is extraordinary. Peter McIntosh, now a successful set designer, was a student in 1988 and got to spend a week observing the Carrie technical rehearsals. So, so then you give this serious artist carry the musical after decades of you know designing Shakespeare for the RSC and it just didn't really gel and and, and I see it was I mean it's an unbelievably clever piece of design really astonishingly clever some of it I still can't work out how they did it it really was uh, an incredibly complicated and clever clever set and um and uh and, and beautiful. I mean, it's just really beautiful to look at. And, and I mean, I'm sure people, some people listening to this who saw that may disagree with me. But I, as a, as somebody who who admires great set design, I, I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying it was perfect for the show, but it was a, a handsome beast of a thing. I stayed with me. I mean, it is so vivid in my mind. I can't, you know, I can't remember things I did last week, but I somehow can remember something that happened 20 years ago. Literally, the stage walls were these rotating doors that the actors and actresses could enter and exit from. But what we saw was a completely contained white space with a slightly plasticky sheen to it, which I thought was to protect it from, from the blood that was coming. I was like, wow, this still is good. Really, like, okay. Then out of the floor rose the shower sequence with these um, um, plexiglass um, translucent screens that the girls seemed to get undressed behind as if they were taking a shower and getting towels. And, and that was kind of okay, too. You know, sort of sexy and whatever. And kind of appropriate. The girls are going to take a shower, whatever. But again, it was just... It just felt like it was hypersex and it was more a Las Vegas show than it was supposed to be a serious story about a young girl who's struggling with her identity and her sense of self. Peter observed the tech rehearsal for this scene and recalls one particularly harrowing moment with the shower set. I should just say that Carrie is incredibly close to my heart because this, this experience, this um, learning experience of just sitting watching 
you know, incredibly talented theatre professionals, Debbie Allen and Terry Hans and Ralph Coltai, who in the end, I just a couple of years before he died, I ended up working with, having the enormous privilege of working with. So um, I hugely respected all of these people's work. Um, uh, and it was a thrill to, to watch, but equally, um, you know, one can't help um, being surprised when things go quite as wrong as sometimes they did in the tech of Carrie. Um, the, the one thing that particularly um, springs to mind is the, the, the famous shower scene, um, a song called Dream On, which I think has subsequently been cut from the musical. A, a really amazing song. And um, I, I, I can still sing it, actually. It's, so, it's such a, a lovely um, tune um, 20 years later. But uh, maybe it's the trauma of the event that, that keeps it in my mind. But um, what happens in the show is that a, uh, uh, a very uh, long, about as wide as the stage, wall of plastic doors comes out of the floor from a slot that can't have been more than 10 centimetres deep. So it's a very narrow slot that opened up in the floor and out of it came these, these um, uh, plastic, a, a row of plastic doors that, that were shower doors that pivoted in the middle so they revolved as the girls came through them in the song. So this thing came out of the floor, the stage filled with smoke, all the girls came out in their underwear, strangely, and um, sang the song and then Carrie had her moment and got to the end of the song and I was sitting there thinking god that is so clever and such a you know what's brilliant about Ralph Coulter's brain is he manages to distill um images into um you know the, the perfect solution and this was a really economic solution this this whole thing that filled the width of the stage came straight out the floor through a very tiny slot doors revolved brilliant and I was sitting there thinking well it's so clever and the really clever thing is that they're gonna they're gonna have to get all of those doors back in line before somebody presses the button for them to go back through the floor into the substage. Um, and I and just can't wait to see how that happens. And even before the thought had really finished formulating in my mind, somebody had pressed that button, the doors weren't back in line and all you could hear was smashing plastic and fiberglass and the whole thing buckled. And that was the end of the tech for that day. And I just thought, goodness, that's, I mean, you know, who am I to say? Did nobody think about that? I'm sure they did. I'm sure in that moment, somebody just hit the button a little bit too soon, but it was, as it, seemed, as it now seems, possibly symptomatic of things to come. Jesus, Carrie! What a loser! Thanks, Carrie! What a mess! How she's dressed! Such a claw! Look at that guy! What a pretty stupid Pain in the ass. Late for class. Everything she does is wrong. Just doesn't belong. Never has. Never will. In the movie, the famous shower scene is framed almost voyeuristically, filmed in slow motion through the steam. This makes Carrie's panic-stricken downfall almost more shocking. There are glimpses of nudity as the confident girls primp and preen themselves. In the show, though, things are a bit different. For a start, a believable shower scene on stage is not easy to do, especially on Broadway in the late 80s, when tastes were rather more reserved. And you see the shower doors and they're sort of foggy and the girls are in towels and they're walking around them, but you can see their bra straps. And I remember thinking how dumb that was, thinking, couldn't they just take their bra straps down? You can see them in their underwear, like right under the towels. And I remember thinking, there has to have been a better way to do that. Because it didn't look 
skillfully theatrical. It just looked like we had our underwear on the whole time in the shower. It was just so stupid. And you know, anyone could have anyone could have thought of a better way to do it. The cast were equally baffled. The shower scene. Now you're thinking you're going into this big old show destined for Broadway and you're going to have some clever bloody yeah body stocking all the way the showers were set up meant you know there was you know I think and we had it frosted you know sort of you know there to there below just chest to thigh and I think if we were all saying if it had been in a circle and we were enclosed we'd probably have stripped off and you know done the whole thing and beautifully lit and all the rest of it shut up and you know but we you know to a degree it was just we got chucked a load of flesh-coloured bra and knickers that they bought at Debenhams that didn't even match the girls of colour. It didn't even match their skin. And some of us were like, seriously? It's just like Debenhams bra and knickers. Nude colour. Debenhams. Rest in peace. In the end, Debbie stepped in and went, let's just put them in white bra and knickers. Let's let, pretend, let's not try and hide it. Let's just put them in all in white bra and knickers. The girls continue sharing their innermost desires. It also humanised the girls so that although they were very bullying as characters, it gave them a moment, an insight into each of the girls that were singing their lyrics. And you went, oh, these are real people. And the fact that they're all working as a tribe and attacking Carrie, they suddenly had a bit of heart rather than just being soulless, nasty people dressed in lots of white. Despite the shot at character development, the sight of these girls making vague, showering gestures in their underwear, (laughs) occasionally simultaneously gyrating to the beat, only causes the audience to giggle at what they're seeing. It sets the tone for the remainder of the evening. As the song begins to wrap up, it's interrupted by a piercing scream. And then when Carrie screams, you know, for the reasons that we all know, we sort of see her in the shadow, that's when the scrim goes up. And now you can finally see everything clearer. And that scene continues to play out. Carrie, pushing her way through the girls, has noticed her first period and thinks she's dying. Naturally, the girls see their opportunity to attack. They whoop with delight and taunt Carrie, tossing her violently around the stage. The cast remember it being quite disturbing. There was no acting required. There really wasn't. I I never, I, I, I can genuinely say that my whole experience of Carrie was just based on instinct and reaction. You know, I just reacted to whatever was, was given me. Um, because it was very unpleasant. (laughs) It just wasn't very nice. It was a hideous scene to do because we've all been there. I mean, it was hideous. It was hideous. But as a a 17-year-old who is still growing and learning, I I think actually it was was actually quite, um, you know, quite a, uh, well, just a a sort of traumatic, you know, I was playing the part and feeling the part. As in the novel and the movie, Carrie's period and subsequent panic attack triggers the onset of telekinetic powers, and a slap from Miss Gardner causes a light bulb in the changing room to shatter. And then the lightning, or the, the, the light bulb that's supposed to break, I think on first preview it worked, and you saw it, and you saw it pop, and, and there was like a little sparkle effect, like from fireworks sort of, and it looked really cool. I don't think it worked again until opening night, when I saw the other, when I saw it 
the two, the two more previews and then opening night. And here's where one of the show's greatest flaws is exposed. Without prior knowledge of the source material and with special effects that may or may not work on any given night, there were very few hints as to Carrie's special power. As Miss Gardner comforts Carrie and sends the other girls away, we move to our next scene. In the Stratford production, this was a short song called Her Mother Should Have Told Her, in which Chris and Sue, admonished by the teacher, have their first spat about their treatment of Carrie. And the audience understands Sue's desire for redemption. By Broadway, this had been cut and the lyrics inserted into the spoken script, although weirdly the song is briefly reinstated in the third preview. Stephen Dolgenoff saw that performance. And I remember thinking how dull it was. It was just sort of like, what are they talking about? But it was telling you plot. But I saw maybe the fourth preview. That was all gone, as was anything that was even close to dialogue. It's a reminder that this show was constantly in flux and Terry Hans was trimming anything which caused the show in his eyes to slow down. Remember, despite the lengthy run in England, rehearsals were still ongoing as the Broadway previews progressed. In fact, by the time it got to opening night on Broadway, it sounded very different to its Stratford descendant. The show's orchestrations, that's the way that instruments are arranged in each song, had been redone by Harold Wheeler, who had worked on numerous Broadway hits including Dreamgirls. Some of the 80s synth sounds from earlier performances were toned down and the show sounds much rockier by opening night. And it's interesting that for the 2012 revamp of the show, those first 10 minutes changed substantially. In is completely reworked and Dream On is gone. We'll be looking at the revival in more detail, but it's clear that the creative team had learned lessons from the 1988 opening and they wanted to set a whole different set of expectations in the new version of the story. The echoing chants of Scary White from the Bullies are interrupted by a cry from Carrie. That's not my name. And we're into our iconic title song. Doesn't anybody ever get it right? Carrie. Why don't they remember that I'm Carrie White? Carrie. Is it any harder to save Lindsay's big moment, alone on stage, properly belting it. I loved watching Lindsay. I mean, her first number was, wow. And to think that she was 17, you know, it's incredible. I was in love. But I have to tell you, she was breathtaking. Carrie is the classic musical theatre I Want song. The late great lyricist Howard Ashman summarised this trope perfectly when he said... In almost every musical ever written, there's a place, usually it's about the third song of the evening, the leading lady sings about what she wants in life and the audience falls in love with her and then roots for her to get it for the rest of the night. It also brings the first big disjunction in style. From the pop exuberance of those opening numbers to this simple, powerful cry, it's a perfect example of the dichotomy of the show. It's a roller coaster of a number that ends with a soaring promise that someday, someone will know her name. This number stops the show and the applause for Lindsay goes on for a minute or more at each performance. Her performance as Carrie is unanimously talked about as one of the high points of the show and probably what saved it from being completely consigned to the theatrical dumpster. Right, next up, there is a pretty stilted scene in which the boys mock Carrie and ask who's taking her to the prom. 
We meet Tommy Ross, Sue's boyfriend, and he checks she's okay. He's a very nice boy. And this is pretty much the only interaction he has with Carrie for some time, which is important to note. And then the set transforms into a simple representation of Carrie's home, a wooden deck and wall, a trapdoor and a single chair. And this is the infamous moment Barbara Cook was left terrified when it malfunctioned on opening night in Stratford and almost clunked her on the head. Despite its simple appearance, the set was extremely complex and prone to misbehaving. In fact, it seems that this particular scene change would regularly go wrong. So we go to Carrie's house and, you know, it's that beautiful piece that sort of slides on, but it's, but it's going really slow as if something's not quite right. So it's just sort of stuck there. And it's sort of like a, like a, like a board door that opens like this that's going to reveal Betty Buckley. So it's going really slow and it, and it looks like something's not quite right. And you're thinking, oh God, are they going to stop the show? But they don't. It finally goes and it goes up and Betty Buckley's there and she gets a big hand and um, she sings her prayer song and that's all beautiful. And Carrie comes home and they have their big and Eva's weak scene. At the first Broadway performance, Betty's entrance gets a minute-long round of applause. The song she sings is called Open Your Heart. Carrie joins in and we understand their close bond and religious devotion. This is a million miles away from Carrie's experience at school. So things don't go well when Carrie tells her mother about the shower incident. Oh no. Tension mounts as she yells some Bible verses. And launches into And Eve Was Weak, where we meet the real Margaret White. And lust was how the sin began, the sin was man. Again, it's one of the most well-regarded moments of the show, particularly when Betty Buckley stepped up into the role on Broadway, where Barbara Cook was relatively static until she carefully bundled Carrie into the cellar to pray, singing the song more like an angry hymn. Betty positively throws her around the stage while belting it. And then when Betty Buckley sings that, that when, you know, when Eve... Eve was... He will burn you. That 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 whole sequence and her is the best performance I've ever seen on the Broadway stage. Ever, ever. And Lindsay, both of them. And Lindsay was incredible. And just as the audience settle down after their standing ovation, it's time to go back to school and another bafflingly bizarre dance segment. Um, potentially one of the most poorly thought out parts of the show. <laughs> Hotly contested. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Don't Waste the Moon. After this short break. <laughs> 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, so we cut away from Carrie, now locked in a cellar and praying for salvation, to somewhere called the drive-in. Oh, God. In the darkness, several sets of car headlights beam out into the audience, and three rows of shaky-looking car cutouts roll on from each side of the stage. It feels doubtful that any of the $8 million investment was spent on these. In each wobbly car, there's a pair of ensemble members. Okay, this is definitely like Greece. Yeah, I mean, if you're the one that I want is set in some kind of hellish alternative dimension, it's very like Greece. <laughs> Ken Mandelbaum's Not Since Carrie book sums things up nicely. When the cardboard cars arrive, doubts about director Terry Hans's control of the evening's tone become exacerbated. So far, half of it is thuggish camp. Half of it is gorgeous musical theatre. I mean, literally, from the sublime to the ridiculous. <laughs> This scene change would also often malfunction, with stagehands having to manually push the cars on stage as the bemused cast sat waiting to hit their marks, causing yet more waves of laughter to ripple through the audience. Sue and Tommy emerge from their cardboard convertible, bopping up and down to the tune as they politely argue. Sue explains she's stressed out about the carry situation. Various other couples join in, nagging each other for not doing things that the other one wants. Basically, the overtone is sexual favours and flimsy 2D cars, right? (laughs) Don't Waste the Moon had some fantastic lyrics. They used to make me, I'd just go, this is so rude. There are lots of references to lending a hand, and at one point Chris bizarrely accuses Billy of being the victim of an active gland. An active gland. Most of the cast are dressed in what looks like white shell suits. Chris and Billy are in red and black because evil, obviously. Carrie is on Chris's mind too, but Billy is over it. Goddamn scary white! Who in the hell is Carrie White? Fun fact, on opening night, Gene Anthony Ray changed the line to... Who the fuck is Scary White? (laughs) There is an amazing video online which we'll post that shows Debbie Allen rehearsing the cast for this number. There's a dance break where she lets them come up with some movements. Joey hadn't seen that video until recently. Debbie doing each couple at a a time and everyone everyone commenting about it uh, and then doing us doing the prom dance 
And there was a couple of uh, other videos, but you know, we didn't see all of them. But it, it's remarkable that the evidence exists. Debbie goes five, six, seven, eight, and counts people in, and then. Yeah, I did. I was not a choreographer. That wasn't what I thought I was there to do. And I'm, I, I'm, I could do it now, but then, don't tell me to improvise. I'm, I just do plies. That's not my thing. And so to be counted in and told to do something, I was like, oh god, shit. We were and, young. We were young, and she's like, right, you've got six counts of eight. Choreograph something, and then you had to show her with everyone else watching, and she'd literally go. And we had to we had to choreograph it ourselves, yeah. Michelle de Vernay remembers one of Debbie's more intense methods of drilling the cast with their routines. They'd have uh, people dancing uh, to cover, mirror people. So you've got uh, Jean Anthony Ray and people doing their parts, and then all of a sudden she'd say, "Pull David Dans or someone up, stand behind Jean and do exactly what he's she doing." Did. And this is when maybe Jean was messing up, or he was being a bit of a diva, or he was tired. She'd get a, a dancer to back you and copy you to just let you know no you can stupid. be re- yeah you you can be replaced. Despite her intensive rehearsal style, many of the cast found Debbie provided the motivation to keep going when the chaos of the show became a little too much. Absolutely love Debbie Allen. She's totally of my world, of, of the way I like to work. I am balls to the wall. Give me anything and I'll do it. And and she's like expects that. Too. So if you don't do what she does, she gets mad. But I, I am that person that does it. She had a spirit and an energy that is really what kept the cast going. She really kept them motivated and energized. And just, you know, if we didn't know what else to do because Terry hadn't reworked the scene, she would just, you know, run the dance again. She was really a great mother in a way, because she really, you know, fed a great room. It was always fun. We always had a great time. She always made us laugh. And so we felt like a family. In the revival version of the show, Don't Waste the Moon has sadly been omitted. Oh, the cardboard cars were consigned to the scrapyard. Recycling bin, maybe? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. It's been replaced with a song called The World According to Chris, an even more overt mean girl anthem for our chief bully. I mean, I love The World According to Chris. It is brilliant. And it has your name in the title. It was going to be an alternative title for, from this podcast. And it will be the title of my long-awaited autobiography, <laughs> I think. There are even similarities in the musical motifs, as evidenced by this voice note Chris sent me late one night. So I can hear, da 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 da, don't waste them, and the world according to Chris, and so on. Interesting. Well, let's give him a listen. The world according to Chris is. Yeah, I can hear that. Yeah. It does serve the same purpose as Don't Waste the Moon, basically reminding the audience that Chris is a conniving bitch you don't want to mess with. But it does sadly mean we also lose that greatest lyrical exchange in theatre history. <laughs> we would go if you really cared, you don't. We would go bowling if you really cared. I do. (laughs) You don't. (laughs) Before we move on, a nice story from ensemble member Suzanne Thomas, whose life was changed thanks to her time in those cardboard cars. There was a a stagehand called David. And um, and when we'd be be sat in the car in the wings for ages, I don't know, I can't remember the technical reason why we were sat in the car so long, but we were. And he, he was going around chatting up all the girls and giving them all gum. And, uh, and I wasn't having any of it. 
Anyway, cut to the long and short, it turned, so every, because I was the only girl that wasn't interested, at the warm-up every day, he would come and find me doing my ballet bar on stage and try and chat me up. And finally, he said, oh, he was sailing the Atlantic. Well, I sail. So I was like super excited about that. So he got my ear and then said, um, well, we need a cook and crew to cross the Atlantic, me and these five guys. Um, do you want to come? And I said, well, I can't because I'm obviously in the show, you idiot, you know. Then the next day, the next day we got notice that the show was closing. And so I went and spoke to him. And then the next day after that, on Monday, I went to meet the captain of the boat. And then after Clary closed, I sailed the Atlantic on that boat. Next up is Evening Prayers, and once again, we shift from the pop-tastic nightmare scape of the high school kids to Terry Hans's American Gothic-infused home scenes, where Carrie and Margaret have made up and are bonding with another quick prayer session. <laughs> Me and my mum do. Uh, Keeping the, the stagehands busy with set changes, we move back to the gym for a quick scene in which the girls are forced to apologise to Carrie, and Sue and Chris cement the end of their friendship. Chris refuses to say sorry to Carrie. Carrie, why did The ultimate punishment. Chris refuses to say sorry to Carrie and Miss Gardner bans her from the prom. Worth mentioning that in the revival there are a couple of new songs here. Dreamer in Disguise is a slightly cheesy number from Tommy in which he reads out a poem in class, causing Carrie to swoon over him. We mentioned this earlier, but it appeared in the 1986 workshop of Carrie, so it took 26 years before this song made it to the stage. Todd Graff played Tommy in the workshop where he sang that song, but was devastated when he messed up. I, I hate to think that my butchering of that song in the workshop is why they cut it out of the show for decades, but I imagine it didn't help that I blew it and it got very tepid applause at the end and, uh, you know... But whatever, uh, I, I retired from acting pretty soon after that, with good reason. Todd's career took another path, as we'll hear about later in the series. Anything else different in the new production? There's also Once You See, which is basically Sue's epiphany that Carrie is a real human being and probably shouldn't be treated quite as shittily as she has Go been. Go on, nice Sue. Back to the 80s version, though, and we get a lovely duet. It's Unsuspecting Hearts. That's how it starts. This was actually one of the first songs for the show to be written. In fact, way back in 1983, the writing team asked singer Lilius White to record a demo of the song to help them pitch to potential producers. This is even earlier than the workshop production. Interestingly, they also recorded two demos of this song, a fairly straightforward one sung by the writers themselves alongside five other early tracks from the show, plus Lilius's version, which is labelled as a pop demo. 
There's a real sense that they were trying to demonstrate the commercial potential of the show. Songs like Memory from Cats had broken out of the Broadway market and made an impact on the pop music charts, and perhaps this was the team's attempt to demonstrate that Unsuspecting Hearts could be Carrie's big mainstream hit. Lilius ended up as the standby for Miss Gardner, eventually played in the show by Darlene Love, a more recognisable name to draw in the crowds. And this was certainly Darlene's big moment to shine. The audience goes wild. Carrie is won over by Miss G's promise of romance and reassured that she too could be invited to the prom someday. Which leads us to... Do me a favour. I love this bit. Putting it into the universe, Do Me a Favour is my favourite song in this musical. (laughs) Maybe in life. Maybe. It's everything that people think Carrie is supposed to be. It has insane choreography, nonsensical costumes. What more can you ask for? I am so glad that it survived right through to the revival. Yeah, it's, just, it's a bit less camp and colourful yes. there, but it's still the perfect song for me. <laughs> Where do we start? Well, I mean, it does help at least to advance the plot. Sort of. Do Me A Favour was one of the few bits in the show I thought worked because the dialogue came out of the number, the number supported the story properly, and it was a great number. I'm so ashamed of how we've all been treating Carrie White. Am I crazy? Am I getting too upset? I'd never dream of asking, but you've never failed me yet. Do me a favor. Sue and Chris both need a favour from their respective boyfriends. Sue's decided to cheer up Carrie by getting her hunky boyfriend Tommy to invite her to the prom. He agrees in record time, considering he's previously only interacted with her once. (laughs) He's keen, isn't he? Uh, Sally-Ann and Shelley remember rehearsing the number. Do me a favour, and I've got such a wonderful memory of do me a favour in rehearsals in Stratford. I was, because of the dancing, and I I have danced since I was two, but I'm not anywhere near like the Charlotte D'Amboise and the Maddie Loftins and all that. So I really had to pull my finger out. I really had to work, work. Um, and I was getting fitter and fitter. I was like a stick. I was so thin, so fit, and I loved it. And I went out and bought myself this new leotard, and it was like a little skating leotard. It had like this really short little skirt. I remember it was dark navy blue, and a, and a big high collar with no arms. And I just I loved it. I didn't think anything of it. I just wanted. I just felt good in myself. And I put this leotard on, and in do me a favor my part Sue she kind of comes through the sea of people kind of doing this kind of wiggly dance and as I came through in my leotard it just in rehearsals Debbie Allen she like crossed her legs and she went you go girl like this it was so wonderful and I just felt like I was like part of her gang you know I was I was like dancer she was trying to do Fosse it, it, she was inspired by Fosse it was the amoeba kind of, you know, smoogy kind of, you know, moving like a cell. Charlotte gets to go full villain here. 
going to the prom and I'm not. You know what I want, Billy? <laughs> what, Chris? What? Pig's blood for pig, Billy. Pig's blood for Pig's pig. blood! Yeah! Blood I loved my favorite number of mine would be do me a favor. Because I didn't have to dance that hard. And I could be sexy. And 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 I loved I loved the way it sounded. I loved the music on that and how it all came together. And I loved working with, with Sally and the whole thing. I, I, I loved the, the group effort on that. Lindsay would watch the number from the wings. I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> I thought everything was brilliant. I was like, this is amazing. Look at them. They're so amazing. I just looked at everything like, my God, everyone is brilliant. Thanks to that misbehaving set, things didn't always go to plan. This multi-million pound set with these big spinning doors on the sides that were supposed to open as we approached them didn't work from from tech onwards. And we used to have to give them a good shove to get on and off the stage. And it it was like, you've spent a million on this and now we're having to just walk to the edge and go, shove, now we can exit. And that was the kind of thing that really let it down because if they had done that at the most perfect moment as you were exiting, it might have looked really slick and amazing. But as it was, the chorus would get to the edge, give it a shove and off they go. I think one of the funniest things that has ever happened to me on stage was with Paul Gingell. There's the scene where I say to Tommy, Tommy, will you, can you take Carrie to the prom? And eventually, you know, in the, in the scene, I, I convince him to take her. And he says, all right, I do it for you, I do it for you. And then I'm left on stage to sing what, what at the time was White Star. Anyway, he turns up stage and he, and he leaves. And he, he goes to the back and he is like feeling around and he can't find the door to get out. <laughs> and he's, because it's a push, it's, you, know, you just had to push in this certain place and you would sort of spin out and off stage. And he was going up and down. It was the biggest laugh that Carrie ever got. It was fantastic. Oh, my goodness. And then I had to (laughs) sing my ballad. Brilliant. So good. If that wasn't enough to set the audience off, Do Me A Favour also has one of Carrie the Musical's most iconic costume choices. Hashtag unitards. Colour-coded unitards. It was just hilarious. All these people in, you know, color-coded unitards. Like, who wears that? It's like, and the ingenue girl is wearing a, a baby pink uh, unitard, and the, uh, the, 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 the devilish girl is wearing a red one, and it's like, oh, come on! <laughs> what, what teenage group do you know that wears unitards to go to school? <laughs> Color-coded, just in case we missed who were the good guys and who were the bad guys. You know, <laughs> costume-wise, we have to talk about the, the unitards, um, which, <laughs> you know, my husband is very grateful for that unitard. I, I, still, <laughs> I wish I still had it. I, I was going to say, where is it? I don't know. I've got a huge picture. Like, it's huge. It's like about five foot tall. I think it must have been from the front of house of... of um, somewhere of me in this pink unitard it's in my house in london does charlotte still have the iconic red one i don't but goddamn, i wish i did you know i could shoot myself oh, oh at one point i did get my last costume and i think i gave it away and i didn't even i should have given it to um the actors fund or you know because it would have sold like crazy i had my last at the end i come out and bow i i think i had i had the white one i had a white mini skirt and high boots and a mini top. I had a great 
jacket costume, really white, really fabulous. I should have kept that. I don't know what, I think I gave it away at some point. Chris. Yeah? Would you purchase Nasty Chris's Nasty Unitard? <laughs> I would almost certainly have it framed upon my wall before you can say Carrie White eats shit. <laughs> Anyway, this is all important symbolism. Oh, yeah, symbolism. Is the bad girl is in red, yes. the good girl's in pink. Is everyone following? There's a kick line at one point. <laughs> of course there is. Back in the theatre, the audience is eating this up. <laughs> That's a clip of them fully digesting the unitard-clad couples gyrating before them on stage. <laughs> Anyway, somewhere amongst all this mayhem, Carrie has reluctantly agreed to go to the prom with Tommy. And once the rest of the cast have gently felt their way <laughs> off stage, back on Earth, Carrie returns home to tell her mother. Boy named Tommy Ross, Carrietta. I've been invited to the prom. Things do not go well. Margaret loses it and sings the most intense song of the show, I Remember How Those Boys Could Dance. Recalling how she too had been seduced into a life of sin, she explodes into a terrifying warning of what could happen to her daughter too. In Stephen King's novel, it's alluded that Carrie's special power is inherited from her absent father, so the titular boy of this song is presumably him. This is Margaret's big number, and again, one of the parts of the show which rescues it from oblivion. Betty Buckley's interpretation in particular is immensely powerful, and on the video you can see the physicality that she and Lindsay bring to the scene. It's also about as close as we get to character development of Margaret. In the bootleg for the third Broadway preview, you can hear how into this role Betty is. She screams some of the lines and still manages to make it sound effortless. Compare that to Barbara Cook's interpretation, which is sung at a much slower tempo. Stephen Dolgenoff, who saw several of the Broadway previews, remembers an interesting detail that reminds us how the creative team were fixated on making tiny, almost inconsequential changes to the show while ignoring the bigger fundamental problems with it. And here's an interesting bit of trivia. So at the first preview, Betty Buckley had a red Bible. And when she opens the, the cellar door, it's painted red on the inside. So they're both in black and, and there's a white set and they're in like a gray sort of wooden house. And then there's the red accent of the Bible, the red accent of the door. She slams Carrie into the door and what would normally happen would be a whole piece of, the, of wood sort of catches fire, like, you know, like some special effect. That doesn't happen. But Betty Buckley turns to look at it as if to see the thing that's happened, but nothing's happened. So... And you can't even tell that something was supposed to have happened, so it's kind of weird and anticlimactic. But it was a phenomenal scene. That was a wonderful song. And, um, you know, um, 
to sort of cut ahead. By the third time I saw it, she still, she had a black Bible, but the inside of the, of the cellar was still painted red. By the, no, that was the second time. The third time I saw it, black Bible, the cellar has now been painted black, but very poorly. It looked like they had painted it right before you could still see the red shining through. And by the opening night, this time at opening night, I'm sitting far away, but you can see black Bible and beautifully painted black cellar. So like these were the things that they were worried about. Like what color should the Bible be? We've got to paint that cellar door. The song swells and you get these epic orchestrations until Carrie has had enough. Using her newfound powers, she stops Margaret in her tracks and... Say it. Her hands catch fire. <laughs> okay, right. Let's yeah. just recap. Okay, <laughs> okay, right. Here we go. Carrie is telekinetic. She can move things with her mind, remember? Are flammable hands, though. Are that, is that a side effect of telekinesis? I don't know, but it looks pretty cool. I mean, I wonder how they do that on stage. Mm. That's another story. That's for the book. Yeah. <laughs> I, can't, I can't give everything away. But that's, that's, that's a story in itself. As Carrie turns to face the audience, flames also leap up from the front of the stage, so hot that Lindsay recalls her eyebrows getting singed. The platform on which Margaret is sitting rises, her face lit, suggesting that she's levitating in the air. For many audience members, this was a completely baffling sight. As the Not Since Carrie book says, by now anyone unfamiliar with the Stephen King novel on which the musical is based or the subsequent film version wouldn't have the slightest idea what's going on or who the characters are or even where the show is taking place. He continues... Stephen King buffs know, of course, that Carrie has the power of telekinesis, but as these powers have barely been hinted at until now, the rest of the audience is bewildered. Why are Carrie's hands aflame? And what just happened to the stage? The word telekinesis isn't mentioned once in the show. And now all hell was breaking loose. I, I, I truly think that if you literally had no idea what was going on, you wouldn't have understood it. If you did know the, know the story... It, it was all there, but it was, I remember thinking it's so fascinating because it's like, it was like a series of musical numbers that told the story of Carrie. Margaret is left hovering, frozen in fear. The curtain falls, there's applause, and the bemused audience heads to the bar for a drink. Well, they're going to need it, aren't they? Yeah, you ain't seen nothing yet. Coming next, act two, and that pig number. They changed it to this rap where we're going to kill the pig, 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 kill him now. Get the blood, 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 ooh, blood. And we go, what, why? And, yeah, it, it, it was a classic moment, really. But they didn't write it for about six weeks. Honest to God, I was waiting every day. They'd be like, and this is when Sue will sing her song. And, yeah, this is when Sue will sing her song. And, and, and then finally I got it. No, we we can't. I'm not saying we we mutinied, but we got Debbie along in our lunch hour and said, Debbie, you've got to help us. This is not making sense. Those leather jackets. When we came off stage with those leather jackets on the last night in on Broadway, they took them off us and shredded them. We all stood there in the wings, going, "That's clapping. Nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. We're awful. We're gonna. This show is awful. We're going down." 
Out for Blood is a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. For more information about us and the podcast, please visit us online at bpn.fm slash outforblood. If you enjoyed Out for Blood, do us a favour and leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded from and don't forget to subscribe. Head to our socials where we've been posting loads of photos from the show so you can see those sexy unitards with your very own eyes. Find us at Out for Blood Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and Out for Blood Pod on Twitter. Out for Blood was hosted and produced by me, Holly Morgan. Sorry. Alpha Blood was hosted and produced by me, Holly Morgan. And me, Chris Adams. Sound engineering and editing by Tom Moores. Paddy Jervis is our audio consultant. Original music by Odin Ornhill-Marson. And artwork by Rebecca Pitts. Thanks this week to Dean Pitchford, Lindsay Haightley, Sally-Ann Triplett, Charlotte D'Amboise, Georgia Otterson, Michelle DuVernay, Shelley Hodgson, Suzanne Thomas, Joey McNeely, Kenny Linden, Eric Gilliam, Michelle Nelson-Mann, Audrey Levine and Jeremy Sturt. Thanks also to Peter McIntosh and Todd Graff and our superfans, Kim Criswell, Peter Michael Marino, Stephen Dolgenoff, Mark Silver, Kate Moira Ryan and Scott Briefer. And a big shout out too to the Carry Archive channel on YouTube. We'll post a link to that if you want to analyse the minute differences between performances of a musical that closed 33 years ago. Who wouldn't want to do that? See you next week. Oh, and Tom, they'll make fun of you. Oh, we've done that one already. We've done this one, I know. Uh, um... What are the references to? <laughs> right, because I, like, I can help with this joke if I do. And you want it? Sorry about you in his hearts. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the Rise Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. Rise is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.